I um, I don't know whether it's possible to cultivate a style. Nobody is precisely what they think they are. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it, where you find it, where you find it. Love mm -hmm. is where you find it. <clears throat> Maybe in the last moments of my life, moments of my life, I will be curious to know what means to die. Welcome to Folk Phenomenology. My name is Sam Rocha. This is episode four of season one, featuring Sarah Hogarth Rossiter on philosophy and math. Today's episode was recorded originally on March 16th, 2021. Folk Phenomenology is sponsored by Whip and Stock Publishers, who published my 2015 book, Folk Phenomenology, education study in the human person, the Institute for Christian Socialism, building a movement of the ecumenical Christian left, Solidarity Hall, Eden, plus Utopia, Revelation Cable Company, Vancouver Custom Cables and Pedalboard Solutions, Black Catholic Messenger, an online publication for black Catholics, where Peter is, there is the church, the Juan Diego Network, Catholic Audio for Latinos, and Commonweal Magazine, the leading lay Catholic voice for commentary on religion, politics, and culture. The featured sponsor for today's episode is Give Us This Day, daily prayer for today's Catholic. Give Us This Day is a uh, booklet published by Liturgical Press out of Collegeville, Minnesota, uh, founded in 1926 by the Benedictine monks of St. John's Abbey. The publication that they've been publishing for the last 11 years uh, is entitled Give Us This Day, and it's an invitation to daily prayer um, for Roman Catholics primarily. Uh, I've been very proud to write a few uh, reflections for them. I've done, I think, two assignments to date and uh, just finished my third, just sent that in. And I have really grown to appreciate the spirit in which uh, the team of people at Give Us a Stay works, and in particular, the warmth of Mary Stones, their editor, who first reached out to me last summer. My opening entry for them was on the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe from this past year. I was probably a bit sheepish, if not even a bit coy, about the identity of this podcast and certainly its religious identity and mainly whether it was going to have one or not. And as I did my fundraising for sponsors, but also as the show came together in the interviews, I, I came to realize that there is a very real and undeniable uh, spiritual and religious dimension uh, to this work uh, as there is to, to my life and, and to my work. And so Give Us This Day not only fills that place in a very, I think, particular way, um, but they also did so in a, in a very providential, we might say, way. Um, I received a very edifying email from Mary that led me to invite give us this day to sort of fill out our sponsors and not only did they accept but they accepted uh on the exact 
very generous terms uh, that were left to be fundraised at that point. And so I'm just so very grateful and so very proud to have them on board. Be sure to check the show notes for links to give us a stay into the other wonderful sponsors of the show. If you would like to support Folk Phenomenology, please share this episode. Subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform and maybe leave a review or drop a tip. In last week's episode with Kaya Oaks, we delved into the poesis of composition and writing to make language, to make words, and in that sense, the world. And this week with Sarah Hogarth Rossiter, we move from language to thought. Perhaps this takes us into the world of spirit and the spirit of the world. Yet another chance to love the world. Dilexi Mundum. Sarah, welcome to Folk Phenomenology. Thanks a lot for having me, Sam. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you here uh, for a number of reasons. One of them being that, as I mentioned a bit before we started recording, um, within the cast of people I'm interviewing, you are really the only, and here I want to be exact in some ways, but also I don't want to offend people may feel they are philosophers in certain ways, and and I'm happy to give people wide bandwidth, but you are the only professional philosopher uh, who I'll be speaking with. And so I thought we could kind of start off with the age-old question, um, what is philosophy? Well, you know, batting back and forth definitions is what philosophers do best, or or worst, or whatever. Um, But... um, yeah, I, I think that uh, in in a lot of ways, um, the subject of philosophy tends to be those questions that um, everybody asks when they're kids, and most people forget how to ask, or stop asking, or think that continuing to ask them is childish, um, and and philosophers keep asking them, um, you know, questions about you know, well, wh- what what exactly is it that that uh, that we call this this thing called existence what what is perception uh, how how do we how do we differentiate between our, our our dream life and our waking life how do we know that anything is true how what is the universe composed of is it all matter are, are there things that are not matter you know all of these kinds of questions that that kids ask really naturally um, and and adults, for the most part, kind of feel embarrassed about asking, um, <laughs> but but philosophers just 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 keep asking them. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I pretty mu- I mean I pretty much agree with that. I think the the questions of philosophy are in some sense childish, and we might even think about that sense of childishness as like beyond the developmental sense of like. The, ch- the questions of children, but they're 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 in some sense premature questions, young questions, mm-hmm. assumptions. Behind, they they kind of live in a kind of uh, prefigurative space, oftentimes, and the kind of not considered or the, you know, um, I'm thinking here of like you know like the question of being, like it's it's probably not a good idea for adults or anyone really to walk around thinking about that question very much yet it's so obviously entailed in you know existing and 
being real and whatever it is that we do yeah it, it re- we live right it, it really gets in the way of day-to-day living if if you if you only dwell on the philosophical questions <laughs> um <clears throat> right no exactly i mean it's funny you mentioned that because as as much as i am sympathetic to and pretty much agree out of hand with the description you offered i actually find myself within my subfield where a particular approach to philosophy called philosophy for children mm. p for c mm-hmm. is very popular mm. I often find myself on an, on a different side there where I'm, I'm usually like, why would you burden children <laughs> with the adult interpretation mm. of the questions, which again, I agree, they, they come to you very naturally, but that often they engage with through literature, through play, through numerous other things that may not be as technically sophisticated as the professional philosophers tool set um, but strike me as being substantive ways for children to engage with them in other words i often say like it's it's not obvious to me why adults need philosophy why would we make children (laughs) do that i don't know what you think of that though yeah i mean i I, i'd like to know more about the sort of philosophy for children thing i i have a, a a friend someone i went to grad school with who uh, who is is now involved in doing philosophy for children stuff in in Portland, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, I I agree that it seems somehow sort of artificial to um, to take uh, to take this this sort of practice that happens organically um, in in children's thought processes and children sort of asking of why 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 and 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 trying to sort of impose a structure on that um does seem to sort of perhaps do a bit of a disservice to it but yeah yeah no i i mean i have a mixed head about it Mm -hmm. also because i don't entirely trust myself that the the interests i have are sort of like anti-philosophical and i hope they're not anti-intellectual sure yeah, it's a difficult thing. Well, and and you know, I I think per- perhaps perhaps what a what part of philosophy for children can be doing is um, encouraging children to to recognize those questions as okay questions to pursue. Uh, and I think you know part of the reason that uh, so many people sort of grow out of asking these questions is uh is because of the perception that these are not okay questions to be asking and um mm. and you know children's children's endless whys get get quickly sort of uh dismissed or you know eventually their parents get worn out and and, and tell them to, to, to just shut up um and and just sort of accept things um but i think yeah i you know being able to to tell children and and young people and you know young adults like the the, the kind of people that that you and i tend to teach um these are okay sure. questions to ask yeah i agree with that i i am reminded of because uh, i do think sometimes there's different kinds of why questions or different kinds of sort of problems that emerge um like my my sense of the child asking why as many times as they can is to actually interrogate that particular rhetorical thing of like, well, you're clearly asking me the question why over and over, and whatever answer I'm gonna give you next, you're gonna respond with why with. So I guess my question now is why are you doing that? Like, what is the, 
are you trying to get at something that you really care about or are you doing this because it's really fun and we're having a game mm -hmm. and if we're having a game mm -hmm. then let's talk about that what are games like you know like to me i think as i think you can interrupt actually the i was driving one time with um my kids in the back seat my wife was was seated next to me and um we were going out to eat back when people <laughs> did that as families right another life yeah and on the way there, the general instruction that was provided by my wife was that everyone is going to drink water. And this was a bit of a commentary on the fact that, you know, was it the most responsible fiscal decision for our family at that time to go out to eat? Sure. Eh, it was edgy, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so everyone's going to drink water. And my son in the back, Gabe, says, well, I recently learned that milk is 98% comprised of water, <laughs> so I'll order milk. <laughs> to which my other son, Thomas, his, his older brother, uh, became outraged and said, this is ridiculous, Gabe, this is nonsense. You have to obey the rules, you know? <laughs> and they got into this, you know, giant fight. And of course, I was looked upon as, you know, the philosopher who had to mediate this. <laughs> just to show you my work right mm -hmm. and so my way of mediating that and that dispute was to say well look when your mom said we're all drinking water she didn't actually literally mean we're all going to drink water what she meant is we're going to drink something that's free and doesn't cost money mm -hmm. and water costs money and milk uh, sorry water doesn't <laughs> cost money and milk does mm -hmm. so we're all going to drink water mm -hmm. to which of course Gabe replied well what if I asked for what if they offered free soda could we just have as much soda as we wanted and i was like and i had to say well no but that would be for different reasons <laughs> than the ones that which were drinking you know uh water and not milk this time mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um well first of all like <laughs> how do you think i did I, I, but also i mean more seriously i think i think sometimes the the whole the why 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 can sometimes be a rather almost unphilosophical set of of excuses for almost not engaging mm. and as a uh, in in what's actually going on in certain cases and i could be here venting slightly about the the same p for c critique but i don't know yeah what's your impression yeah i mean sure that it, it it can it can be an element of sort of almost willfully talking past one another right and and not actually um N not engaging charitably, I guess, you know, when you, when you are um, uh, hearing um, hearing what someone is saying and 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 trying to interpret it in a way that fits your own devices rather than rather than hearing the intention behind behind their um, their words. I've lost your picture. Yeah, no, I think it, I think that's true. It looks I think the, the motivation or intention issue is, well, to to plug, I guess the show's title. That's the sort of the phenomenological core, right? Is yeah. is what is it? What is the thing that you're actually trying to to get at whenever you're speaking in this way or that way or what have you? Yeah, and and I mean the the well, I was just going to say just the, the the practice of of engaging charitably. Uh, it's not something that philosophers always do very well, but it it's uh, at least. Ideally, it's it's um, it's kind of one of the golden principles of, of philosophy, right? That we're we're always seeking to um, 
we're always seeking to hear the other uh, in, in a way that is um, giving sort of most, most credence and, and sort of the strongest possible interpretation uh, of, of the intention of the other. Uh, and, and, that's, and that's a practice, well, you know, as the name suggests, it's a, it's a practice of loving the other. Um, and that's something that I, I sometimes explicitly mm. tell tell my students when I'm when I'm teaching them about the principle of charity. You know, well, what 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 is this that this this is this is a way that we love people um, by uh, by hearing them as uh, as as sympathetically as we can. Um, but it's hard. <laughs> it's so you've something that needs Scotty to be done. Us into the, uh... Uh, yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> no, I mean, th- I mean, this is. I think this is another place where the um, maybe what maybe what we mean when we say taking, in some sense, childish or or children's literal questions seriously is l- loving them. Both the questions, one might say. Um, I'm thinking of Rilke's famous line about loving the question, um, mm-hmm. but then also in some ways, it actually means loving children and not just telling children like. You know, I'll only love you on the condition that you, you know, not make me think or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's actually fascinating. I never thought of it quite that way. Mm. Now, neither of us teach children as philosophers, so to speak. I don't think. Um, not not, uh, not in any formal way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder if we could talk a bit about just... <laughs> Because I've always found it strange that um, I'm very reluctant to, on the one hand, class myself as a sort of capital P philosopher. It To me, it just invites all kinds of controversies and miscommunications and stuff. I will often punt the ball and say, I'm a teacher. Mm. And internally inside myself, I'm very, in, I'm not insecure about calling myself a teacher and being able to mean what I actually would mean if I actually used the P word philosopher mm-hmm. for me teaching and philosophy are kind of, you know, conjoined in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. But, but you're a teacher too. Um, and we both teach different, you know, subdisciplines of, of, of philosophy. But I wonder if you could maybe think with me a bit about this relationship between philosophy and teaching for one, whether you agree that there's something kind of, inherently philosophical about teaching and then furthermore if you kind of relate that to your own experience or not yeah well i mean i I strongly relate to the 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 feeling of discomfort with sort of identifying oneself as a philosopher um although i i i do sometimes um but it's always sort of uh it depends on the context whether whether that's something that feels comfortable or not uh, partly because it tends to be misunderstood. Um, a, a lot of people really have no idea what philosophy is, and uh, and a lot of people I, I find especially a lot of students when they're first taking you know a, a first year intro philosophy class or something like that. Uh, th- there's a lot of people who 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 seem to conflate in their minds philosophy and psychology. Um, maybe these these I don't know two two p words or something, and and you can wind up with these weird. Um, conversations with people who assume that what you do is psychology um and this has happened to me at the bar before yeah 
where, yeah. where people are like, you know, what do you do? And I'm like, and if they finally ask me enough, well, I guess, why questions or, or what questions, mm-hmm. I'll reveal that I teach philosophy and they'll be like, oh, I took a psychology course one time. And yeah, I thought it was literally yeah. two pH words, but I wonder why you think it is. Well, yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> I think they're both p words uh, about things that 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 people don't really have any 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 clue what they actually are um, generally. Sure. Uh, Fair enough. They, and um, and I don't know. They, I suppose there are some, you know, they, they, they both have to do with things of the mind and uh, and and kind of. Um, abstract analysis and and these sorts of things so you know i I guess there are some there are some points of contact um and you know certainly there are philosophies philosophers who study you know cog sci and um and that sort of thing and and, uh yeah so my department uh, is a department uh, but go ahead no i was just gonna say my department was a department of educational um philosophy and psychology yeah, yeah. So they just sort of lump them all together. But in right? education, the relationship <laughs> here is actually quite close, historically at least. Philosophers actually invented, in some sense, what they called child study, which they later called psychology. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, in terms of the the kind of um, the 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 default into identifying oneself as as a teacher or or one who teaches philosophy or you know. Um, I might say, I, you know, I teach, I teach at the college down the road, and then, you know, the, what, <clears throat> what is it that I teach? Well, sometimes it comes out that it's philosophy, and, and that that's it's usually a, a major kind of conversation killer, because um, <laughs> people don't really yeah. know, know where to yeah. go from that, unless they try to take it in the direction of psychology. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, in terms of the connection between. Um, philosophy and teaching in the sort of inherent connection there. I mean, I think um, a philosophy sort of exists in the in the realm of, of teaching and, and I mean, our, our kind of uh, in, in the Western tradition, our, our sort of uh, archetypical model of this is, is in the dialogues of Socrates and, um, and, you know, the way in which he dialectically engaged whoever whoever would would sit with him for an hour and um and turn things over together you know um and and it's it's a it's a collaborative endeavor and um and and almost always happens sort of in the context of, of of a teacher and student kind of grappling with something together Speaking of Socrates, and I love just, I, I have to confess, like I read Plato's dialogues, kind of in the way that some might read Scripture, in the sense that the stories, to me, every time I return to them, I find something new that's kind of funny or weird that sure, I, that's sure. kind of not this, you know. So let me share with you my latest discovery of, of Socrates as a character. <laughs> is is that it's so for instance whenever he's uh him and glaucon are coming back from the piraeus at the beginning of the republic or in the symposium uh or in in quite a few of plato's dialogues socrates actually has no interest in talking to anyone in one case he's just walking back home after going to a festival and in other cases he's come to just you know 
a drunken dinner party, whatever. And he's almost has to be like coaxed into talking, which then provokes someone, whether it's Thrasymachus or whoever. Um, and this to me is actually kind of interesting. Where like on the one hand, there is the archetypal view of Socrates, who was just walking around the agora, talking to anybody who would talk to him. But there's also being a gadfly. He's kind of a reluctant. What was that? I said being a gadfly, uh, annoying people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, pissing people off, you know. But then we also have the Socrates, who's kind of like not in, not looking for trouble, just finding himself in the. Now maybe I'm being too. Um, I, I tend to be way too sympathetic to Socrates' character, so maybe this shows how I'm a kind of a, a lazy reader. <laughs> Uh, but what do you make of that side of the character? Uh, well, I mean, it, when you're sort of describing that, you know, <laughs> to, to kind of draw the, the parallels with scripture even further, uh, I mean, you know, there, there's, there's a sense in which, you know, Socrates has often been read as, as kind of a typological figure in, in, in the type of Jesus, you know, that, that he's uh, mm-hmm. kind of the, the, this innocent man who, who, who's executed. Um, and, uh, and and you see that same kind of dynamic in reading the Gospels in terms of, of Jesus, sometimes just really trying to trying to mind his own business and, and get some time for himself. And uh, yeah, and, and people just won't let won't leave him alone, you know. Um, yeah, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, that's, we, a, we, that's we, a really kind of you yeah, could ex- I mean that's. T- it's a fruitful tension, actually. Yeah, it looks like our connection is a little a little loose here. That's okay. Um, so we're teachers, we're philosophers, we're reluctant to say we are philosophers, less reluctant to say we teach. I find, because uh, I teach teachers the philosophy of teaching at some level, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one thing I find about teachers is while... It's fairly common to spout any number of the cliches about how every teacher is a student, blah, blah, blah. That it's not nearly as common that the teacher will actually um, use their experience as a student as a criteria of sorts for the kind of teacher that they are or what have you. Like, it's for some people, it's more difficult. Um, and I know... Um, that as a student you came to philosophy through one might argue is a different discipline or at least in the modern academic division of disciplines it's different being math and so this to me kind of gathers a lot of things so it takes us back to the whole like philosophy of children philosophy for children i was referring to like children engaging with you know stories and stuff and, and everything but my guess is and I want, i'd like to hear you know a lot more from you about this you know biographically if you're willing um, you came to it through, um, well, I don't know how exactly, but the subject matter of math is not what every child has come to philosophy sure. through. But this is literally your path, as far as I understand it. Could you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's maybe maybe not an entirely uncommon path. I, 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 know, uh, I know a number of, of uh, quote-unquote professional philosophers who... Who, um, who, yeah, had their start in in a background in, in mathematics, but yeah, I, I was I was a, a total total math nerd as a teenager. Uh, I I uh, 
in, I was in d doing math competitions and doing team competitions, tra traveling for team competitions. Mm. Um, I, my the wildest parties I threw when I was 16 involved me and my math math nerd friends uh, in my parents' basement constructing models of polyhedra out of Bristol board to give to our math coach. Uh, so so I mean, this is what I was doing as a 16 year old, um, and. Um, I, I I I wanted to be a mathematician. I, I knew that's what I wanted to be. That and that that I was I was you know single single mindedly focused on on that and and so yeah in, in undergrad you know I I was uh, I was doing a degree in uh, in pure mathematics um, and uh, between my between my second and third year I had a little bit of a um, a crisis of direction, I guess. I, I in that summer between second and third year, I was uh, I, I had gotten an, an undergraduate uh, sort of research assistantship grant thing, and so I was working with one of the profs um, on a project. It was probably a project that was a little bit beyond my uh, my current capabilities, um, and so and so it, it was it was frustrating from that perspective. Um, but I. I sort of came to see in that summer a couple of things. First of all, um, how solitary and isolating um, contemporary professional math research is. Um, that it, it's such a it's such a fragmented um, and specialized hyper hyper specialized field that you know if you're working as a professional mathematician you're probably working on a project that there might be, if you're lucky, half a dozen other people in the world who can even understand what you're doing. Um, and, and that's sort of the degree of fragmentation, right? Um, so I, I, I had a better sense of just how, how isolating it was. And, and the other thing that I sort of came to realize is that my love and my passion was, was really kind of classical problem solving. Um, stuff that uh, stuff that had been worked over to death, and um, that was not really uh, n not really live questions in in contemporary mathematical research, and and I wasn't all that interested in a lot of in a lot of what was happening in in math uh, research, where even even in the in the pure math side of things, you know, uh, you know math sort of has this division into pure and applied mathematics and even on the even on the pure math side of things where you know we aren't we aren't thinking about uh, how is this useful we're, we're just doing math for math's own sake there's it's it's still very much driven by um, by developments in computing and uh, and that sort of thing and um, and and I, I wasn't I wasn't really all that interested in that. So I, I kind of had this this kind of crisis in direction uh, around that time. And at, at around the same time, uh, as I sort of began to question whether, you know, graduate work in mathematics was really where I wanted to go, um, I was taking more and more philosophy courses. And, uh, and one of those courses in my third year was uh, intro, to, intro to Formal Logic, which uh, is sort of you know an, a natural a natural philosophy course for a, for a math geek to take, um, and that was really my my gateway sure. drug into into philosophy. the the other The other thing that I that I was taking more and more of was uh, 
stuff in the history of philosophy and, and I became especially uh, intrigued by medieval philosophy, um, which kind of allowed me to uh, allowed me to explore philosophical questions that um, that are, are perhaps not in vogue in, in a lot of other fields. So yeah. Would you mind? I mean, that's so rich. I really appreciate that answer. If you could maybe go just a bit further into what specific aspects of medieval uh, philosophy and the history of philosophy uh, you are interested in and, and what those untimely subjects themselves may be. Sure. Yeah, I mean, well, I think a lot of it is that uh, there, there are a couple of things that are happening in medieval philosophy. and, and um, and one of them is um, the way in you know a lot of, a lot of a lot of contemporary philosophers have this uh, sort of um, picture of of logic sort of beginning with Frege and and uh, mathematical formal logic, but you know of course it has a a much longer and much richer history than that, which goes back at least to Aristotle, and. Um, and so the, the the kind of logic that was happening in in the Middle Ages is um, incredibly rich and incredibly language driven and incredibly complex, um, and uh, and in some ways kind of uh, engages logic in in ways that are arguably more nuanced than than contemporary mathematical logic. Mm. So that's sort of one of the things that that was mm. um, intriguing to me about that period. Um, and then the other big thing is that uh, this is a period where you can engage questions of philosophical theology in in kind of an, sure. uh, uh, an unabashed, unapologetic way. Um, you know, uh, which uh, you know, in a in a secular institution, um, uh, questions of philosophical theology are 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 often treated with some with some suspicion or, or disdain. Um, but I mean, those are. Those are questions that uh, that that I I like to think about. So so being able to kind of think about those things in conversation with uh, these figures of the past was um, was something that that I I really enjoyed. Yeah, no, that's um, I mean I sort of two responses to that one will be a, 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 a one of these kind of sophomoric challenges only because. My knowledge of the area is only capable of regurgitating the kind of, you know, pedestrian things one hears. Uh, not not to say that I could defend my position at all, but like, I mean, the story of philosophy, especially of analytic philosophy, especially with regard to logic, is that mm. Aristotle started this, oh, but he was wrong, which we didn't find out until Frege, and then things actually got started, <laughs> and now we are where we are. like. That's the story that I've always kind of accepted. And to be honest, in many ways, like, I have to admit, it gave me a certain amount of pleasure only because within Catholic philosophy, the Aristotelian standards always seemed so high and conveniently ignored all of the problems with Aristotelian logic that were discovered very late, of course, with the, you know, coming of age of mathematical logic and then the work to, to continue out that that led up to you know positivism and whatnot so i always felt like i had this kind of like consolation in my bonaventurian heart that i didn't have to give everything away to aristotle and the thomists so to speak 
because the analytic philosophers, you know, had this other story that I learned in a secular <laughs> philosophy department and so on. I mean, so what you're doing is in some ways challenging, right? For for me, at least in terms of my own therapeutic <laughs> assumptions. Um, but then I think the other question about like the philosophical theology part is actually quite, I mean, that to me is interesting because I mean, like these are powerful questions and there's, it, there's nothing foreign to philosophy or especially something like geometry to having in religious entanglements or spiritual entanglements, however you want to say that, you know, so that, that part of your answer is less surprising to me, but I wonder if there's more to be said. And then the first part of your answer was kind of like, whoa, I got to <laughs> deal with this uh, later. Uh, but I wonder how you respond to that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, uh, the the short answer is that I think this sort of, uh, yeah, this idea that that Aristotle was was just wrong, and there were no sort of further developments uh, until we got to Frege, and 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 the problems weren't really unearthed into Frege. I, I think that that story is, is just is just incorrect. Um, that there's there's a lot there's a lot of really sure. rich, exciting stuff happening, uh, particularly. Uh, Particularly in 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 14th century uh, philosophy, um, 14th or early 15th century philosophy, um, that are that are definitely you know new new developments and and you know the I think that there are it, it is it is still um, kind of largely um, grounded in sort of Aristotle's conception of of uh, uh, categorical logic. Um, um, but it, it becomes far more, far, far richer and far more complex than the sort of, you know, square of opposition um, with, you know, f four types of categorical statement and no more. You know, there, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot more work that gets done and, and I think a lot of work that um, substantially mitigates um, the, the kinds of, the kinds of limitations that, that um, sort of, Aristotle's logic on its own uh, has um, so yeah and I mean th these were these were really bright guys doing uh, sure. really amazing stuff uh, with yeah. with you know remarkably limited resources you know and I, I think that that's one of I, I think that there's no denying that the that the movement towards uh, um, symbolic logic and and sort of the the mathematization of logic um, has been really really powerful in in sort of making sort of great quantum leaps in uh, in the developments of logical theory but it's also it's also pretty pretty incredible um, what what these what these 14th century guys were doing um, uh, without That's those amazing. tools yeah yeah no you're gonna <laughs> Gonna revise my what I thought at one point was a fairly robust sense of the history of philosophy. You know, it's like um, now there is one point that I don't think is too technical to to bring up to talk about a bit, and it's more of an irony at this point to me in this story. As you can tell, I'm I'm pretty much a continental philosopher, so I relate to everything through story, literature, yeah, yeah. characters, right? You know, <laughs> uh, that's my vocabulary, but. You know, like, absolutely, it's the case, you know, I would say, well before 
Frege, you know, when we have the, you know, the invention of calculus with Newton and like this whole turn, right? Some may call modern, some may call whatever. I don't, I don't really think there's time to, to go into that. But while logic does become mathematized, absolutely, we do see then at the very beginning of the 20th century, though, the kind of logic, logicification, if you want to call it, of math. Mm. Um, and and these sort of arguments for 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 a kind of logic as a kind of atomic uh, entity uh, undergirding mathematics, and so I I'm 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 only bringing this up because I think it's I it's interesting to me to think of that what we call logic today is primarily conceived of in this very kind of mathematically communicated uh, way. But it's also interesting for me to think about within the history of ideas, the way that in turn uh, challenged a certain way of thinking about maths, to use the British expression, um, and and gave us at least these early attempts uh, by G. Moore, Bertrand Russell and others to try to establish logic as the sort of like metaphysical antecedent to mathematics. Mm. For one, just like what do you think of that thesis or claim? Uh, but secondary to that, like maybe there's examples in in the Middle Ages of people doing these kind of things because it it's it's me- it's it's medieval in the sense that it's a metaphysical way of working. I I've always thought, which is not foreign to scholastic or you know classical antiquity or you know that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't have a strong I don't have a strong sense of of that in terms of the early 20th century. Um, uh, and, and a lot of that comes down to just just simply not really uh, not really knowing. <laughs> um, it's not it's not an area that I have uh, worked on or thought about a lot. Um, but I it, it, one of one of the things that that medieval medievalists are annoying about is you know when people talk about developments that happened in the in the in the Renaissance or or even modern periods, uh, the, the, the annoying habit of medievalists is the, well, actually, we can see precursors of yeah. that in, <laughs> um, and, you know, the, 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 guy, the guy that I work on, his, his name is Thomas Bradwardine, and uh, it, so in, a, in addition to, uh, he was uh, early 14th century uh, British, uh, he was he was very very briefly briefly Archbishop of Canterbury for about two months before he died of the plague in in uh, 1349, um, as as oh. as everyone was was doing in 1349. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, yeah, uh, he uh, uh, he he was in addition to being uh, you know a philosopher and a theologian, uh, he he was a mathematician and and a physicist. And um, you know, this isn't really the the area of, of his uh, of his work that that I've worked on uh, a whole lot. But you know, he was he was uh, writing about um, uh, continuity and uh, and and sort of the the concepts of beginning and ceasing and 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 sort of developing. Uh, he's he's gesturing towards developments that became you know. Uh, what got called infinitesimals in sort of uh, the early early modern period, and and then developed through you know Descartes and Leibniz into uh, kind of a robust calculus, um, and um, 
Yeah, I mean, and I, I think, yeah, the, 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 the precursors of these ideas are often much earlier than, than, we, uh, than we give them credit for. <laughs> And I, yeah, I think no, I think I, one so of this medieval. I was going to say this I, I medieval say this. Um, yeah. feature is amazing. I, I love whenever the medievalists show up, right, and they kind of ruin uh -huh. the, the party. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's the it's the medievalist specialty. <laughs> the, it's very Socratic. Br bring, bring, yeah, br bringing to light the this sort of forgotten thousand years of history. Um, which, which is really what it yeah. is in a lot of ways, you know? It's it's just a, you know... No, it, it definitely is, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, maybe moving to a more accessible place for uh, for, for, for for many listeners, um, this, this in some ways at least gestures around uh, an actual, like, first-person experience I had and the education of my own children. So early on, I even think I published like a, a, a very quick slapdash version of this on First Things, like, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago. Um, it, it was at, at the very beginning of really my eldest son's more or less formal education. I became obsessed with the idea, probably influenced by this kind of l logic heavy accounts of math that in order to understand math one should first understand some basic principles of logic in particular to understand simple analogies um and and, and very spatially though like you know we would use toys and and then there's there's these uh analogies for beginners as a dinosaur on the front and need to kind of like detect what are real uh, analogies and what are false ones and draw lines and stuff so we're talking like like developmentally like age five six kind of stuff right um and then the simple just you know principles of, of, of non-contradiction and, and consistency and that kind of thing and um it was my view that like this is fundamental and important and at the time because i hadn't experimented with it or probably thought long enough it seemed obvious to me that this would just seamlessly integrate itself into uh, number sequences all the way into basic early, uh, you know, um, addition, subtraction, and so on. And I was very quickly, um, well, I very quickly discovered that at the level of this kind of exposure to what we're calling logic and math, there's actually very little in common, especially when you're teaching a child who has no formal senses of what's supposed to be this or that of why the fairly obvious and intuitive relationships between simple analogies, for instance, or non-contradiction principles of consistency, which you can replicate spatially, for instance, and stuff, they're kind of baked into reality, right? That there's very little re relation between that super intuitive and obvious stuff and why numbers are sequenced in Hindu Arabic in the order that they appear and why the 10 and the zero function the way they do at the intervals that they do. Like there's no actual, okay, I, I may actually reveal myself here to be a monumental idiot, but my experience was that there's no, strictly speaking, on the previous teaching, there's no logical explanation for that. 
I found myself having to explain so it more as ten fingers. grammar or language. <laughs> okay, so maybe yeah, the, that's even better. The five, <laughs> the ten fingers explanation. But this, this has cons. This is kind of for many years now. Afterwards, it was a powerful discovery, a falsification of my assumptions that, well, if logic is the sort of the the metaphysical antecedent to math, if you attend to very simple. Uh, analogical and, and, and non-contradictory reasoning, you're going to just, you know, arrive at, at mathematical reasoning immediately. And it turns out that's total nonsense. It doesn't work at all. It's simply untrue. But I still weirdly think that the logical early stuff is still really important for developmental and other, re and other reasons. So I wonder, like, you know, we've talked about the history of ideas, but within the context of, like, early elementary math pedagogy and teaching and maybe also here we're talking about philosophy for children again maybe some would say mm -hmm. um, maybe i'm contradicting mm -hmm. myself in fact um <laughs> could you maybe help me intervene into this and maybe i got some of those things basically wrong because i'm a continental philosopher and i didn't think well, i don't know well a, a, a number of things kind of popped into my head as you're talking and uh um and one of them is um, that you know this this idea of of kind of you know, basic concepts of non non contradiction and and uh, and basic kind of logical um, logical truths sort of undergirding mathematics. Uh, you know, it reminds me of the of the kind of largely failed project of like you know the famous one of Russell and Whitehead uh, the the sort of taking I don't know how many pages to to try to to try to prove on first principles a priori that that one plus one equals two and you know it takes pages um, and I, I think that there's a lot of ways in which uh, when it comes to especially especially early math education and 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 math education in general that when we when we try to um, when we try to approach things from a kind of a priori place, um, when when we try to um, when we try to to you know show these principles from the ground up, um, I think that there's a lot of ways in which it kind of puts the cart before the horse, and and I think a lot of that has to do with um, uh, I guess sort of um developmental stages uh, you know what what we're kind of mentally capable of and mentally ready for at, at sort of di different stages of, of development um i think i think it also has something to do with the fact that and this is something that that uh i i ran into somewhere somewhere in undergrad and and i have no source for it but someone saying that that math is not something that you learn it's something you get used to and I think that there's there's a sense in which this kind of captures really well the way in which um, the way in which the internalizing of mathematical concepts, the sort of settling of mathematical concepts, often happens. That you know when we're first introduced to a new mathematical concept, we may not understand the why, and and we may simply sort of be following it in a in a kind of uh, rote sort of way, um, getting sure. comfortable with it. Um, but then eventually, somehow, there's, there's, 
maybe not a moment, maybe a, a, a progression, but it's at some point down the road, you understand the why. Um, but you understand the why because you've been doing it. Uh, and and I think that, um, you know, I, I, I've mentioned to you before uh, that I, I have a lot of uh, kind of suspicion of and criticism of the, the you know, what gets called the new math. Um, and, you know, a lot of yeah, elementary yeah, yeah. mathematical education these days is is really uh, strongly focused on on trying to trying to get kids to really understand uh, why they're why they're doing uh, the sorts of manipulations that they're doing. You know, we we don't teach we don't just teach you know multiplication in a in a sort of rote way that you know you've got this this number multiplied by this number and you're going to multiply the 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 ones digit by each of the other digits and then put a zero and multiply the tens digit by each of the digits and then you know progressively do this and then add them all up and then you have your answer right uh instead we're going to create this complex chart where you put you put you know the ones and tens and hundreds digits of the one number across here and the ones and tens and you know down the other way and then you're gonna um you're gonna combine all of the pairs and then you're gonna add all of those things up and you know it it comes down to the same thing in the end, um, and and the theory is that that this way of sort of manipulating it in in a bigger chart, um, in theory, uh, enables enables someone to to see better what exactly it is that they're doing um, mathematically when they're doing a, a you know multi-digit multiplication, um, but. I don't think that at the stage at which kids are learning how to multiply, I don't think that they're necessarily conceptually ready to grasp that. Um, and they'd be much better served by being shown, okay, this is how you do it. We might, we might have a conversation about why it works or whatever, but whether or not you understand why it works, but let's learn how to do it. And then you have sure. this tool that you can apply Okay, you know how to do it. Your confidence is built because you're doing it correctly, uh, because you, you've been taught a method that works. Um, and whether or not you sort of fully understand all of the kind of inner mechanisms, you've been given this tool that is that is going to unlock all kinds of other things that you can apply it to, right? And as you and as you continue to use this tool, the understanding is going to come. Like it, I, I feel like it doesn't. It's not something that. Uh, it's not necessarily something that is um, uh, teachable in a way. Um, you, you can you can sort of show it, but in, but until until the learner is ready for it, it's it's not gonna it's not gonna register. Um, yeah, that's a compelling. I think that's a compelling critique of the new math, and also of what I think is sometimes. It's funny because. Um, this might be an oblique um, relationship that I'm making, but one of my earlier expressed concerns about P for C is this kind of philosophical overdetermination of thinking and understanding and conceptualization and all these like admittedly powerful, wonderful, and surely worthwhile endeavors 
yeah, to me, it's it's not always clear, like, like surely there's other things in that, and 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 also p things that lead towards them. But I even want to say there might be things that are just good for their own sake that don't actually have to to reach some kind of apotheosis of of understanding mm -hmm. or thinking or whatever. Like you know, fun is is good for its own sake. I mm -hmm, think, mm -hmm. and if manipulating numbers, however unthinkingly, you find fun or you experience subjectively as fun mm -hmm. we could on the one hand say well someday that fun is going to turn into understanding mm -hmm. but we could also say like it's nice to have fun mm -hmm. and if that's how you have sure. fun then have lots of it right yeah you know? um, <laughs> yeah i'm into this this is cool <laughs> it goes a bit against my pedagogical preference for a kind of a logic mm -hmm foundation mm -hmm. um but it also shows in some sense maybe why that project failed so spectacularly and so quickly mm -hmm. <laughs> uh because it because you know there wasn't anything there um i've heard some people um use the distinction between formulaic math pedagogy so where you're learning formulas versus like conceptual mm -hmm. where you're actually like thinking through things and what have you mm -hmm. and my sense is that what you're saying is that this is this dichotomy, in some sense, is a little bit like made to order mm -hmm. to benefit the the one who wants to do it. Like formulas are fine, yeah, to the extent that they are useful. They, exactly, yeah, yeah, um, and yeah. you know the 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 one who has ears to hear, or the, the the one who is who's who's ready to 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 understand the concepts will understand the concepts, and and to the one who's who's not at that stage. Well, they're gonna they're gonna gain useful skills that are gonna allow them to have the kind of confidence to to apply them in 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 ways that um, allow them to to enjoy it uh, one way or the other. Um, my 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 mom is is a high school math teacher, um, and and she does she does a fair bit of kind of uh, remedial math work. Um, and uh, one one of the things that's kind of a, a bit of a hobby horse for her is that um, she thinks it's really really important to get kids, especially kids who are struggling with math. It's really important to get them to know their times tables, um, and to and to just have them, you know, um, uh, at their fingertips, so that so that multiplication is not is not a battle and it's not a struggle. Uh, if they can just have their t their times tables, which you know she just drills by rote, then that suddenly enables them to 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 do more complex things without that being the thing that is uh, the the onerous thing that's holding them back. And you know, by and large, by and large, kids these days don't don't learn their times tables. And to be perfectly honest, I, I'm 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 terrible at times tables. I I'm, I'm terrible at <laughs> mental math. Uh, I, I I I cannot do fast calculations at all. Um, and uh, but you know I I'm I'm also someone who um, who has uh, who has been drawn to the kind of more conceptual um, way of of getting getting into math. So you know I can't remember a formula to save my life, but if I can. If I can figure out how to derive it, then I can then I can, you know, recover it every time I need it, <laughs> which is maybe not the most efficient yeah, way to go yeah. about things, right? But you know that works for me. But but not everybody's not everybody's like that. Not and and that's not going to be helpful to expect that every person 
is is going to is going to fit that mold. Yeah, no, I, I mean, like for instance, like this whole mental math thing, you know. I grew up all my life in school assuming that people who were good at so-called mental math were the real math-skilled people. And I always related to physical math, namely like using my fingers and count counting things and using a pencil to make marks on a page so I could keep mm -hmm. track of things. Mm -hmm. And when I discovered uh, very late in the game, um, well, this is embarrassing to admit, geometry <laughs> I was like this is great this is physical math this mm -hmm. makes so much more sense to me mm -hmm. um, and 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 then I and then you know reading more realizing that like this is a total like mental math is kind of nonsense like there's no you know on the one hand what's non-mental math and then on the other hand actually you know I have a colleague this might interest you and I hope I don't butcher the details but he has gone, he teaches uh, math here at UBC, and he's a geometer. And he has a particular um, cognitive orientation to numeracy that he is actually a geometer who's incapable of drawing uh, shapes that describe or refer to the concepts. He's a conceptual geometer. Um, and he talks about how within geometry pedagogy, this is unacceptable. You have to be able to sort of show your work on the board as you're doing it. And so what he does, and I think this is such a beautiful example of, of an amazing teacher, is he takes the effort to learn the shapes artificially and draw them on the board and talk to them as if he was thinking them. But he says that sometimes he notices that he's he's not able to deliver the contact that's needed. And so students are a little thrown off. And, and, and the best way you can explain them, though, is conceptually. And so, I mean, whether one engages math physically, like I kind of made a joke about, or whether one engages what I've called physical math conceptually, I mean, there's a lot of range here. The spectrum is kind of huge. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I really relate to the uh, the feeling that uh, that doing sort of mental arithmetic is is a real challenge, and 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 perhaps feeling like uh, uh, I mean, I've certainly had the experience of, of of having of having people sort of look at me askance when they when they know that I that you know I'm a major math nerd, but I can't do a, a simple mental calculation on the spot you know um and and they think well how how can how can this person possibly be uh be any good at math but they're, they're different skills you know uh arithmetic and no, and 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 mathematics in general uh you know you're, it's it's not um being a mathematician is is not necessarily being an arithmetician um <laughs> right right yeah no i mean um in high school, my one of my closest friends had to leave because he was too good at math. Uh, he literally was he had he had exhausted our, our small high school's math resources and was uh, sent to kind of a, a, a school. Uh, I think it was a satellite of University of North Texas where they had some resources for uh, people who were gifted in mathematics and and Charles Halford was his name. And Charles and, and I was a debater, and so we would go to these tournaments, these academic tournaments, where I would do forensics and he would do math, but we'd hang out, you know, on breaks. And 
And it was funny because one of the things that we found interesting, and I want to kind of bring this up as a kind of wrap up uh, uh, point, but you know, rhetoric and argumentation and uh, winning a debate against other people determined by external judges. To him, this was a real high mark of a kind of intelligence that he found just like, whoa, this must be like, you know, the line for, for what intelligent people do. And on my view, his ability with calculation and mental and every other kind of math and his capacity to, to talk to me about them and explain these things that, that, that really no teacher, frankly, had made any sense to me about, um, that to me was really the, the ceiling of intelligence. And, and w at one point, our discussion got kind of meta where we said, you know, out there in high school and, and in the world around us, and when they put our names in the newspaper, different people think that you or me, that we're the smart kids. And that what it means to be smart is in some sense, you know, to talk in a certain way or to calculate in a certain way. And we both kind of came to the agreement that this is all nonsense. I mean, there are also things that neither one of us can do that we would find someone who would be able to do. And we would say, that's impressive. But we're just kind of projecting what we can't do upon this vague idea of intelligence. But I, but but you know what? At the end of the day, you know, most of my work is on the very like, literally like, what is education? I believe one of the biggest like burdens and maybe one of the most toxic assumptions about education, schooling, all this stuff, has to do with what we think intelligence is and what we believe being smart is. And for a lot of people, philosophy and math is about. <laughs> where it hits mm -hmm. I wonder if you could turn on that and, and just you know I mean maybe you disagree with Charles and I and think no that is really what intelligence is but <laughs> no, I mean my suspicion is that you don't agree no. with that yeah. so like could you say a few words here in closing about just being smart being intelligent what those things do mean what they don't mean you know yeah because a lot of people are going to hear this episode and be like oh it's a smart episode <laughs> I, I shouldn't listen to that well, I mean, it, 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 uh, it's all kind of aspects of imposter syndrome of various sorts, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we all kind of have, have our sort of uh, little areas of, of, of specialty that we know really well, right? And, and as, as long as we're uh, in those areas, we feel really comfortable. Um, but other, other people have, have other areas which, which, may, be, which may be overlapping, uh, with ours um, and and may not be and and so when we hear speak people sort of speak with a level of insight about something that's outside of our own comfort zone uh, it it it, um, it can totally tap into our into our insecurities and and um, it can uh, make us you know utterly convinced that this this is obviously a, a much more intelligent person than I am um, because we we all have different skill sets we all have different strengths and and uh, and I mean one of the so I, something that, that I've been kind of um, turning over in, in my mind uh, my, my husband Elliot has been um, reading a book lately and uh, I I'm not even exactly. Uh, the book is called *The Knowledge Economy*, and I'm trying to read the author's name from where I'm sitting right now, and I can't. Um, but but one of the lines from this guy, uh, you know, the, 
I'm sure there are only so many books called the knowledge economy. You can you can look up the source later, but one of one of the lines from this guy that that Elliot quoted to me was that was that part of the uh, the task of the teacher is to recognize in each and every student uh, a um, uh, a tongue-tied prophet, um, mm-hmm. and and I thought that that I mean it's such an idealistic vision. Of, of what teaching is, um, but there's this really profound truth about it as well that you know each and every person has has some sort of gift of prophecy if only they could realize it you know um, and uh, yeah I don't know I thought that was really beautiful and 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 kind of relevant to this discussion of of you know well what exactly is intelligence and what are kinds of intelligence? Well, I mean, there's as many ways to be intelligent as, as there are people. Thank you for listening to this episode of Folk Phenomenology Season 1, and special thanks to Sarah Hogarth Rossiter. I would like to again thank my sponsors, Whippenstock Publishers, today's special and featured sponsor, Give Us This Day, the Institute for Christian Socialism, Solidarity Hall, Revelation Cable Company, Black Catholic Messenger, Where Peter Is, The Juan Diego Network, and Commonweal Magazine. The friends of the show are the Commonweal Podcast, The Gloria Purvis Show, Disinherited Podcast, Davud Gosley, Up Too Late with Teresa Zoe Williams, Conversation on Tap, Saintly Witnesses, Kinder Conservative, The Show, Gregory B. Sadler, and Cush Classics. Please make sure to check out the show notes for links to the sponsors of Folk Phenomenology and also to the wonderful friends of the show. The friends of the show are really a number of people and individuals, first and foremost, uh, with whom I'm literal friends with, who are producing media that I believe is friendly with this show, both in terms of having certain points of sympathy and also in terms of being media that I myself uh, listen to and in certain cases uh, have appeared on or will appear on. Please share this episode and subscribe to the show on your favorite app or platform and also follow us on social media and please continue to support the show with as much signal boosting and other things that you feel comfortable doing you'll also find a tip jar and the show notes uh, you can drop a tip and all tips that I collect during this season one will jumpstart what I hope to be a season two at the end of this year next week I am releasing the interview that I did with Sofia Gurule. Sofia Gurule is an immigration attorney in Brooklyn, and we have a conversation on abolition and immigration. The discussion actually sort of got started, we might say, in a very natural but nonetheless extremely personal way. I had pressed record to essentially just kind of get us started and we quickly got sidetracked by talking about our respective families and in our cases 
our families in the Southwest area of the United States. And I found that the conversation grew very organically from those genealogical comparisons and contrasts and discussions into a wider discussion of the concrete work of an immigration attorney, but also the doubts and the struggles and the losses uh, that come with that work and the guiding spiritual, political principles of abolitionism that serve as Sophia's compass and that I submitted to uh, a bit of scrutiny, but also um, shared uh, a great deal of solidarity with her on that. I have to say, and I must uh, warn you, that this will be the uh, one explicit episode of Folk Phenomenology Season 1. Um, Sophia speaks and spoke very freely, as did I, and so this is not probably a show for those who are uh, uncomfortable with the use of some strong language. Nonetheless, I think that it is a powerful testimony to a kind of work that can often be generalized or politicized while forgetting the people who are doing that work every single day and who nonetheless have to do that work, making sense of the work and trying to understand it as deeply as they can, which of course carries with it any number of struggles and doubts and fears and all the things that love brings. So make sure to uh, not miss next week's episode. Folk Phenomenology is written, hosted, recorded, and produced by Sam Rocha. That's me. If you want to find out more about me and my work, you can visit www.samrocha.com. We're moving from the teacher to the activist, the philosopher to the lawyer, the laws of logic and mathematics to the laws, the moral laws of abolition. In all of it, I hope we can find more reasons to love the world. Delexi Mundum. What is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, is because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting, I don't say word, concept, idea. My job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. Love is where you find it. That's where you find it. That's where you find it. Love is where you find it. Hey, you don't know where it will And it is a terrifying thing. Love is the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. Through the eyes of our ears, we see the beauty of hope. We see the beauty of pain. We see the beauty.